Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Jack Scott, co-founder of Dash, the flavoured sparkling water brand. You may have read quite a bit about Dash recently because they've been growing very quickly. They've just secured new investment and appointed a new chairman. And so it was great to catch up with Jack on his plans for the brand and its mission to fight food waste. And we ended up having such an interesting and wide-ranging conversation, not just about the brand's plans and food waste, but also inflation, how to do carbon labeling as a small brand, how to get cut through with buyers, how to work with influencers and grow your D2C business. Uh, Jack's just really open and honest about sharing knowledge, so uh, there's loads of really, really useful insight and info to take away. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed on some of the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. UK shoppers will have to spend on average £180 more on groceries this year as inflation continues to soar according to Kantar. Grocery prices were up 3.8% in the most recent four-week period, with particularly fast rises for beef and poultry, savoury snacks, crisps, skincare and cat feed. There was some big news this week on the health agenda, with reports in the grocer suggesting the government could be set to unveil a brand new approach to its obesity strategy. This new approach would emphasise greater collaboration with industry and would focus on a smaller set of health and reformulation targets. Separately, the clampdown on junk food advertising, which is due to come in in January 2023, could be delayed by as much as a year, following a concerted lobbying push by Tory peers and industry. Ads for HFSS Foods face a 9pm watershed from January, but efforts are underway to convince the government the industry needs more time to prepare. Tesco announced it is pulling the plug on its Jack's discount stores. The stores were launched in 2018 in response to discounters Aldi and Lidl. Tesco also announced it's closing down meat, fish and deli counters in 317 stores and that it's moving overnight restocking to the daytime in several of its stores. As a result of the changes, up to 1,600 jobs could be at risk. KP Snacks has warned of disruption to its supply and potential product shortages after the company was hit by a ransomware attack. The disruption is expected to last until at least the end of March. The government has promised a school food revolution in its levelling up white paper, which was finally published this week. 
This includes a pilot project between the Department for Education and the Food Standards Agency to better monitor and enforce school food standards. The government also announced a new deal to safeguard supplies of CO2 for the food and drink industry. Meat processors, brewers, soft drinks manufacturers and other suppliers had warned of serious disruption if a fertiliser plant in County Durham would cease to operate. The New Deal guarantees production for at least the next three months. Pret-a-Manger is increasing the price of its coffee subscription from £20 to £25 a month, following a hike in the cost of milk, coffee and labour. And finally, Aldi and M&S have agreed a settlement in their legal battle over Colin the Caterpillar. M&S sued Aldi for trademark infringement last year after it released Cuthbert the Caterpillar. The terms of the settlement were not disclosed. Those are some of the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes and on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Jack Scott. Jack, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Hi, Julia. No, great to be on. Now, you are one of the founders of Dash, a brand of sparkling water that's infused with wonky produce. It contains no sugar, no calories and no sweetness. So you're very much positioned in that better for you, healthier soft drinks segment. Um, You've been very busy recently. You've just released a new mango flavor, which I can attest is very tasty because your team very kindly sent me some samples. So sipping on sparkling mango as I was preparing for a podcast a little earlier. And that new flavour is not the only big news for you. You have also disclosed a substantial new investment round and you've bagged yourself a new chairman in the process in the form of David Milner, someone who is very well known in the FMCG industry, used to run Tyrrells for many years, ran Lily's Kitchen and so forth. So there's a lot to talk about. You've clearly been very, very busy. But I'd like to start at the beginning, if I may, Take us back to the early days of Dash. Where did the idea for the brand come from and how did you get started? The reason why um, Alex and I started Dash, or one of two reasons why we started it, first is that we're both from farming backgrounds. So I come from an arable farm in in Shropshire. um, And it was here that I saw that there was a real issue at farm level with food waste. I think one of the stories that... um, that always, I always remember when I was younger, at the end of the summer holidays, um, me and my brothers would help dad out on the potato grading. Uh, there was a few conveyor belts going off and the smaller or slightly green potatoes would go off on one conveyor belt. And I, you know, asked dad where that went to. Um, and normally those potatoes would go to animal feed or to, um, to waste. And that really struck a chord with me. Um, so food waste is at the heart of of dash um and then the second reason is that alex and i um saw a real gap in the uk market for a great tasting drink that didn't have any sugar or sweetener um so dash is really simple it's freshly sprung spring water infused with wonky fruit and we add bubbles so three simple ingredients 
And so when you decided you had this idea, you wanted to do something about uh, food waste, you saw this opportunity in the market, what was the process then like to go from that initial spark of an idea to actually developing a brand and, and getting products into the supermarkets? One of the, the key pieces um, that Alex and I did while sort of scheming to launch a brand is that to trial it out on consumers, um, what we did is we'd have large vats of water. We would infuse fruit overnight um, in in my flat in, in London. And then we would go and test those out on consumers um, in London parks. We would cool it down and then we would carbonate it. So we would replicate the product that we, we wanted to create. Um, and the resounding feedback was that it was, you know, really refreshing, tastes really natural. Um, and that, for me, was one of the key moments that made me think that we had something um, and that we were creating a product that people wanted and, and needed and wasn't necessarily out there on the market. Um, as you'll know, for, you know, creating soft drinks, um, the minimum order quantities are very high. So to try and get around that we did we tried to do small can runs um, and we foresaw in the craft beer world that um, they were doing small runs of cans with wraps on on the aluminium cans rather than printing um, so we had huge um, problems um, and months of trying to can a small amount of of sparkling water we quickly found out that our liquid um, wasn't very easy to can on a small scale. So that was a quite a stressful period where we couldn't necessarily get the product into a can. Um, but all part of the, the, the DNA of the brand and something that we can look back and have a laugh about now. But it, it was very stressful at the time. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And I'm I'm really intrigued by what you were saying about the dynamics of the soft drinks category, because absolutely, as you say, there's an expectation that you've got a certain run size, but also it's a it's a category that historically has been dominated by some really, really big suppliers, and buyers in that category are used to dealing with some really, really big suppliers. What was your experience in those early days of getting to talk to buyers? I think because the liquid was something new, so it wasn't sweetened with either sugar or, or, or sweetener. It was quite an unusual proposition to larger retailers. So um, when we first went to them, um, they weren't necessarily in, interested. However, it was the more sort of independent beacon accounts that we started with that are looking for something new, mm. um, you know, progressive and more sort of health conscious. So that's where we had. Um, we made good inroads in the early days through those smaller independent accounts, such as, you know, the Planet Organics, the Whole Foods, as nature intended, those sorts of places took on Dash. Um, and then once we were able to build up um, a bit of a story with those retailers, we were able to then um, show um, the larger retailers that we, you know, were potentially onto something and they should be part of that. Those early tests you did with consumers, just making sure that you were onto the right product idea, did you find at any point that um, there was a bit of a barrier because people are, um, in soft drinks certainly, are used to very, very sweet flavour profiles? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think we've all been trained within the soft drinks world to have a certain level of sweetness, whether that comes from sweetener or artificial sweeteners. So um, 
at the at the start it was very difficult um especially with the flavors that we went for which was lemon and cucumber to begin with um and but what we what we believed is that people's palates have become more sophisticated um more recently and that people um like less sweet things um or certainly grew to like them over time i suppose it's like having instead of taking sugar out of your cup of tea you don't necessarily like it to begin with but once you drink it a few times it becomes the norm and then you wouldn't necessarily go back to the, the sweet cup of tea so that's what we we we've we found um much like what, what we found in in soft drinks i think what is important though is that um we believe that dash has a really uh, true um quite strong flavor especially with our more sweeter variants such as ras raspberry a black currants, peach and mango. Um, so we've able to, you know, create a drink that has still got like that full natural flavor. So it doesn't sort of disappoint um, when you're sort of consuming the drink. Like some of our sort of competitors um, have, you get that sort of very strong upfront flavor on the nose, but when you drink it, there's no real flavor. But with us using real ingredients, we've managed to create what we think is a, you know, a fantastic tasting drink that's really delicious and um, people tend to like it, you know, 90, 95% of people actually do like it on the first attempt. I'm really intrigued to understand what opportunities you see for your brands around um, the health agenda, but specifically HFSS, which is obviously a big talking point across grocery at the moment. When you are having conversations with your retailer partners right now, do you see an opportunity there to perhaps um, get into some of the more high profile promotional spaces that previously would have been occupied by, you know, those really, really big suppliers? Or, or what impact are you expecting the HFSS changes to have on your brand? Yes, I think it is a, it is a great opportunity for us um, to get more promotional space within the supermarket. So as a brand, um, we're, we're super excited about it. Um, obviously, um, the fat and the salt isn't necessarily something that plays a larger part in soft drinks. Of course. Uh, but it, we definitely see it as, again, it's it's building awareness for healthier, better for you products. And the more education around that, the, the better we believe for, for products like, like Dash. Um, but as you say, it's it's so competitive within the soft drink sphere. It's mainly um, um, back of store is sort of taken up by those larger multinational companies. So the more opportunities for challenger brands that um, are having a healthier product, the better in, in my eyes. And clearly it's an opportunity that investors are buying into as well. As I mentioned in the introduction, um, you've had some big news recently um, around closing that latest investment round and you have a new chairman. Tell us just a little bit about what that means for Dash and how do you plan to uh, spend that extra money? What are your plans for 2022? The growth of the business has been fantastic. And the idea again is to double the business. Um, and as we've you know, discussed um, previously, it is a very competitive category. And for us to maintain and really continue to grow at the level that we want, it does involve investing, you know, with retail um, relationships and also 
um, getting more expertise on the team um, to grow in certain areas. One area, for instance, that we're really investing heavily is our D2C business. Um, we, over 45% of our sales mix comes from direct to consumer. And what I'm direct to consumer for us is actually both our, our web shop and Amazon. Um, wow, and, 45% of total sales. Yeah. Um, and um, within our D2C channel, 50% of sales comes from subscribe and safe. Mm. Um, so that's people who have got buying Dash, um, you know, biweekly or monthly on a subscription. So we, we truly believe that Dash can become uh, an e-commerce business. And um, as you'll know, e-commerce um, takes a while to, to get going and is quite expensive to acquire new customers. So we're really investing in, 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 that, in that sector for, for the future. And has D2C always been a really important channel for you? Or is that something that's really come to the fore as a result of the pandemic? Before the pandemic, we were selling a lot of product through, through Amazon. Um, so we saw that there was a real sort of, um, you know, good amount of customers. Um, I think it's to do partly as well due to sort of the weight of the product. So having it delivered to your door really helps rather than having to lug it back from, from store. So before the pandemic, we had our website um, and our performance marketing and our different acquisition channels up to a good level. Um, had a very good agency who was helping us with, um, you know, Facebook advertising. We had a, a three-click checkout on our mobile on our mobile website. So all of these things were in place. So when when COVID hit, we were able to really jump on the opportunity um, and take advantage of very cheap Facebook advertising. So as a result, it to acquire new customers online for us became very very cheap which meant that we were able to invest heavily in the channel to acquire, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of new customers to Dash through our, our web shop. Um, so it's definitely ignited it, um, but it was a, a key focus for us before the pandemic. As you say, you know, e-commerce and particularly D2C um, has so much potential, but it does come with its challenges and customer acquisition costs are always sort of, you know, top of mind for anyone who is who's looking to do D2C. Other than sort of taking advantage of some of those cheap Facebook ads that were around at the time, is there anything that you have learned that really works for you in D2C in terms of acquisition and, and crucially also then building loyalty and getting that repeat purchase? We've learned lots. So um, those, as you say, certain channels become more expensive um, to acquire customers. So Facebook, for instance, at the start of pandemic was very cheap because a lot of larger companies were pulling advertising from, from Facebook, whether it was to do with travel or hospitality. So um, they, you could reach a, a much larger audience for a cheap amount of money. But that, for instance, now has changed. So you have to look at other channels that will bring your cost per acquisition down. So one channel that's working very well for us this January, for instance, is working with influencers um, to um, have a commercial agreement with them where they are paid per acquisition. So that, for instance, has been um, a good uh, channel for us currently. Um, that's so interesting, and and so is is that on is that on Instagram or is it on TikTok? Um, yeah, that's mainly Instagram for us. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. But but you're not paying them. It's not that sort of classic influencer model where you say, you know, I'm paying for a a, a sponsored post here, but it's actually um, paying them per customer acquired. Yeah, it's still a sponsored ad. So mm. they would advertise it as being a sponsored ad. Um, and what you in an ideal world, we would we would weight it more on per acquisition. But what they tend to want um, is to safeguard that a bit. So you'll give them a certain amount up front for the activity and then you would pay them, Got it. Um, you know, a certain amount of money per acquisition on top of that initial amount. But you said you've you've been seeing really good results with that particular model. It's really interesting, the influencer um, advertising world. I mean, you, you basically, it's, it takes a lot of time to find the right people. But once you do find the right people, um, the rewards can be fantastic. And there isn't like a huge amount of science behind why one person works particularly well. Um, but as you sort of do more activity, you get a better understanding of who might work for, for the brand. Um, what tends to work well for us is if the, the influencers had a strong relationship with the brand previously, so has talked about it organically, right? Um, you know, previously, and is actually in love with the brand. So it's very sort of authentic. Totally, yeah. And it goes in line with their sort of daily life. So it feels sort of natural and genuine when they are talking about Dash, which makes their, you know, their core following really want to to purchase that, you know, Dash, for instance. Absolutely. And I feel like consumers are um, expecting different levels of authenticity now as well around some of these influencer relationships. You know, there's an, I think people understand by and large and accept that, yes, influencers will have commercial agreements but it as you say it needs to feel organic and natural and needs to fit in with with the with their usual content and not just be a sort of really jarring commercial message are you finding that that sort of um alignment happens mostly with smaller influencers so you know perhaps not necessarily micro influencers but you know those with perhaps smaller followings that are, that are very specifically targeted or are you seeing better results with people who who do have the the top line figures in terms of follower numbers and engagement yeah it's a, it's a mixture i think we've in january we've done some larger influences um and that that has worked well for us um because the the it's a sort of simple sort of numbers numbers game so the, the more you pay, the the more hopeful, you know, the acquisitions um, would come from it. But I think it it's not necessarily the number of followers that we find. It's it's how the influencers have previously worked with brands and how their relationship is with their following that that really helps us um, build like a a strong partnership. So, for instance, if if someone doesn't do paid ads and only works with brands that they you know truly love then that um you can see the results from that 
I could ask you, you know, just about influence and marketing for another 45 minutes, because as you say, it's, <laughs> it's so interesting. And yeah. particularly, you know, what really resonated with me there is, is what you said about, you know, it's not necessarily a science, you kind of have to just go with your gut feel a little bit as well, and just see um, where, you know, if there's a good fit between you and, and the particular influencer. But I'm going to bring you on to your articles. Um, and you, unsurprisingly, given just how important uh, that whole sort of food waste piece is to you and the brand specifically, um, I wasn't surprised that you picked an article about food waste um, as one of the pieces for us to discuss. This is from The Grocer, and the headline is, Wrap launches new industry partnership to tackle household food waste. And the new partnership this is referring to is between RAP and an organization called Behavior Change, which really uh, specializes in behavioral science. And the idea here is that the new partnership will use behavioral science and insights um, to create food waste campaigns and messaging that really resonate with consumers and inspire them to make changes to their own behavior. Jack, why did you pick this article? Other than the fact that it talks about feed waste and you're super interested in feed waste, but what about this partnership really caught your eye? Yeah, so I think at Dash and what I mentioned previously was about a farm level. So what we know is that a third or even up to 40% of food um, or fruit and veg that is grown in the Western world goes to waste. And from reports um, we've seen around 10 to 16 percent is happening at farm level um, so there's also a huge amount of waste that's going on within the sort of supermarket um, supply chain but also at home so i think that this article stood out to me because of how we as you know society can encourage people to waste less at home um, and for instance we did a campaign i think it, it was i think it was actually last january where the campaign was you know we need you and one of them for instance was around recycling one of which was around wasting less at home um, from your fridge um, so i think it's it's something that what we're trying to do as a brand is work within that raise awareness of food waste um, across across the board, not just at, at farm level. Yeah. And from the work that you have done and some of the campaigns you have run, what have you learned about what it takes to engage consumers on food waste in a positive way? Because sometimes the danger is that people just feel a little bit hectored and hassled, um, don't they, with, with some of those campaigns. So, so what have you seen work? I think it's, yeah, thinking of sort of creative ways. I mean, I, what I love is, the, I think, um, that your listeners will be at the, a brand called Obbox, for instance, which I think is yes. a brilliant brand that is really educating people, firstly, on you know, that fruit and veg doesn't need to look perfect, but also encouraging them to be creative with their cooking to come up with new recipes um, and getting them to cook with what they've got rather than 
um, you know, looking at Pacific recipes, going to the supermarket and buying a large amount of an ingredient, but only using part of it for the recipe that they need on that evening. Um, so I think what we found really interesting is, you know, working with, um, again, coming back to, to some, some influencers around sustainability who have a focus on sustainability and working with them to create some really fun recipes that people can use um, or can easily do at home. Um, I'm just thinking of one now, which is sort of sticks in my mind with these amazing sort of lemon donuts, um, which was made of some very simple ingredients that all people have. So um, that's how we, we try to um, communicate and really engage with consumers at home to, you know, finding a better way um, to, to create food, food at home. And sort of thinking about sustainability messaging more generally, not just feed waste. Mm. I was interested, actually, when I uh, had one of your cans earlier, um, you do have your, uh, your carbon footprint yeah. on your cans. Have you always had that on there? Yeah, good spot. It's, it's a new addition mm, to the can. I thought so. Um, yeah, um, we're super excited about it. Um, so we worked with um, a company called Carbon Cloud, um, who have helped us. Um, understand the the carbon output that we create to create a can of dash um, so that's all part of us becoming carbon neutral and that's scope one um, understanding the the output to create our our product and we believe that that's important um, to the consumer because it shows a level of transparency but also hopefully we're a brand that people can trust and know that we're doing um, more to reduce our, our carbon output. Um, I think much like, you know, products, food and drink products have got calorie count on them, perhaps in the future, um, hopefully people will make a decision on the amount of carbon that um, is, is used to, to make that product in, in their choice of buying something. And there are already, you know, obviously effort, efforts underway to, to create uh, labelling schemes that would be quite similar to a sort of traffic lights style system um, where mm. consumers can potentially compare and contrast environmental impact across uh, products and, and categories. One of the points that always comes up in discussions around these schemes is that for challenger brands, for smaller businesses, um, the costs involved in doing life cycle assessments and getting uh, your, your carbon footprint or your environmental footprint measured, certified and uh, into a form where you can actually make an on-pack claim, those costs can be, can be really high and it can be a big barrier for smaller brands. Can you just share a little bit yeah. of your perspective on this? Is that still a significant barrier? It's becoming more expensive, uh, interestingly, hmm. um, over the last couple of years. Um, I think it is expensive um, to, as a for a small business, to go above and above on in regards to sustainability. Um, but we see it as a small price to pay to create. You know a business that that does good um and sources our fruit in a you know in an environmentally friendly way um 
and has less impact on on the world around us and that's the business that we want to create so it's an important cost um while we sort of develop the brand and we want to be doing more than 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 other um people and be a leader i suppose um within sustainability in in, in food and drink and i guess there are quite a few startups now that are that are looking actually to disrupt some of that um carbon footprinting sector um yeah. so it's sometimes quite difficult i think for brands to navigate who does what and what's robust and what isn't robust um but at least it, it sort of it, it offers um an opportunity at least um that that actually some of the costs are going to come come down if if that sector gets a little bit disrupted no no exactly and as you say there's there there are opportunities out there to work with you know great companies um and if anyone um of your listeners wants to get in touch with us about the process that we've been through we'd be you know delighted to share all of the information because as you say there is quite a lot of research that goes into it to try and pick the right partners um who have the right accreditations etc cetera, etc cetera. super now that's very generous of you to offer I'm going to bring you onto the second article, um, and we're staying with the grocer. Um, this is a piece from a little while ago, actually. It's from December. Um, but when I saw the headline, I thought, actually, this is a really good one. I want to talk to you about this. Yeah. The headline says, supermarkets harder than ever to deal with uh, report challenger brands. And what it reported on at the time was uh, a survey by Young Foodies, that found buyers are increasingly shutting down conversations with smaller suppliers about passing on soaring costs, putting pressure on businesses that can least afford it. And one of the the stats that came out of the uh, survey was that more than half of challenger brands said it had become more difficult to access retailers in the past six months. And access to information, for example, about range windows was also flagged up as a growing concern. Uh, you are a challenger brand. We've already talked about, you know, some of the dynamics of operating in a category that's that's dominated by some very big suppliers. Um, so I was really interested in your take on this article. Did the, the findings of that Young Foodies survey resonate with you? Did they reflect your own experience? So I think first off, we are, like everyone else, seeing very large um, increase in, in our cost of good. Um, and that's driven through, you know, manufacturing costs, with, whether it's energy, um, labor, raw materials. So we're certainly in that boat. Um, and the challenge for us is, as a challenger brand is that we want to continue to grow um at a healthy rate so we're we don't want to do anything to hamper to hamper that um we're also we are also in a we're also a premium brand within a category um that is very competitive so there's lots of things that we need to to consider and we don't necessarily want to pass that on to the consumer um at the moment um so that's a little bit of a background on our current situation um i think through through the, the last sort of year or two years the range windows have become difficult to understand or don't exist um so buyers have put things on hold 
um, quite rightly, or what we found is, you know, buyers have moved to different roles or new new buyers have arrived. So it's been difficult to to maintain, you know, good communications with the the right um, category buyer. So that has been challenging. Um, I think we were fortunate that we had just before COVID had gained some really good distribution. Um, so we were in a good place with, you know, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, um, Ocado. So those, I feel like if COVID for us had happened a year before, it would be a very different outlook and things would be very different. So I feel very fortunate on the timing. Challenger brands or any brands really always want to know what it takes to get the attention of buyers. Um, and you've clearly managed to do that successfully, uh, looking at your distribution. Any sort of tips and tricks you've learned over the years, any tactics or strategies that really work to, to get that cut through with buyers? I think in the early days, what I think we were looking back on what helped us to really sort of get our foot in the door with some of the say, for instance, in luxury retail, whether it was sort of Selfridges or Harrods or Whole Foods, is my advice would to be try and bring the buyer on the journey from as early as possible. And it's sort of, you know, getting their advice on certain things within the brand. Now, you might want to take their advice or you might not, but if you're ringing them along the journey, they feel invested in, in the project. So when you are ready for that launch date and you can say um, to the Whole Foods buyer that, you know, we've taken on your feedback and, you know, this is, they're, they're obviously more likely to, to give it a shot. Um, so I think that's really important thing for sort of young uh, businesses and entrepreneurs that don't be afraid to reach out to them before you have something. Um, so that's a sort of a piece of advice. And then later on, um, it's all been around data and showing, you know, one supermarket that, you know, we are in this new, very exciting category that's growing by X and we are the number one brand within that. And that's been, you know, really helpful for us to be able to get deeper distribution within the supermarkets, but also, you know, bring um, more um, grocers on, on board. Got it. I think that's some fantastic advice. I can imagine listeners scribbling down um, <laughs> what you were just saying. Our final article, again, is uh, one from the grocer. Um, the headline here, this is the leader article, actually, from the most recent edition. Uh, the headline is, supermarkets are powerless to prevent food price inflation, but the how and the where has enormous repercussions. And this is really reflecting on the campaign by Jack Monroe, highlighting the impact of food price inflation on the poorest and most vulnerable households. And in particular, uh, the, the piece is reflecting on retailers' responsibility to consider the impact of how and where they pass on inflation. Jack, it's obviously super topical it's been a big discussion point i think within grocery uh this this particular campaign what made you pick this particular article yeah i think it's um it's quite scary really what's going on with inflation and i think speaking with people within the food and drink industry um you know inflation 
is a, is a lot what we're seeing is a sort of a lot higher than perhaps what's being talked about in the press and sort of wider sort of inflation rate so you know the cost of food and drink you know is going to go up quite considerably um and i suppose this article was interesting of how the supermarkets have got such an important part to play within that um and how you know consumers are you know when that is passed on to the consumer and when's that not passed on to the consumer and this article highlighted that you know it was the lower end um more necessity style products that it was going up considerably which i thought was quite interesting and happening so quickly um which is quite startling and scary absolutely i think it's it absolutely is scary and i thought was what's been quite interesting in terms of the response to the campaign from the industry is there's a little bit of pushback actually on some of the stats that appeared in in some of the campaign you know yeah. some correction saying oh actually it's not a hundred and so and so percent uh, it's just 50 percent up which is you know hardly yeah. reassuring but um but yeah i i think you know particularly poor households uh people who are who are financially very vulnerable obviously have so much less capacity to absorb these shocks as well so um i think as you say the responsibility uh that retailers have that the entire industry has in um just being very mindful of the impact of you know what happens when you put up prices on some of those um, staples, those everyday basics. Yeah. Um, the the impact is is potentially enormous. From your point of view, and you mentioned, of course, like like everyone else, you have you know you're seeing inflation in your costs. What is um, what's the biggest challenge cost wise at the moment? What's really just going up and up and up? So. For us, it's um, the manufacturing. Um, so um, it's the cost of um, that we're seeing from the people that that, that fill our cans, um, and then the warehouse and distribution has also gone up. So we use a big three PL in Cheshire, um, and we've we've just seen a, a big increase in in that. Before in December, it was like I, I was I sit next to the um, finance director and we were just getting calls you know every every day for a week about all of these different costs going up which is really really hard for for us to take because the re what as a brand for us it's about you hit certain scale and then you would like to see costs come down because of economies of scale and that's where you can perhaps you know look to break even um and that for instance has become you know so much harder for us because of these price increases and what i've talked about earlier with the um you know the the relationship with the the larger grocers being at its sort of infancy so and also not necessarily wanting to pass that on to the consumer um for the for the time being being in sort of quite a price sensitive category yeah absolutely those manufacturing and distribution increases are they driven primarily by the cost of labor or are there other factors that are that are driving that as well yeah mm. and energy i imagine so labor yeah labor energy and then the sort of cost of um the transport so you know you might have heard about shipping prices mm-hmm 
Um, so for instance, sort of getting a ship, um, a container from um, say the Middle East, I think used to, to cost around 1600 pounds is now um, around 16,000 pounds. So the, you know, exponential um, costs and not that we get anything from, from, from the Middle East, but say for instance, you know, cardboard mm. maybe came and coming from, you know, mainland Europe, for instance, and the cost of, of that has gone up significantly. So the cost of the, the, the transport and, um, you know, the cost of making the raw material has, has, has shot up. And, and you can't see that. I think shipping might be, um, you know, a global thing that will hopefully settle down perhaps once um, COVID um goes away hopefully globally um and ports properly reopen um but there are certain costs that i don't think will come come back um which then means that obviously that has to go on to the consumer and on the most part totally are you finding we, we obviously talked about feed waste a little earlier in the podcast and um there has been more awareness around wonky fruit um there are, you know, many retailers now that they have wonky ranges. Did you find that that's increased the cost of sourcing wonky produce for you? That it's created a sort of a more competitive market for some of these wonky lines? Yeah, no, it's um, it's a good question. It's actually something that does come up. So we've, as part of the sort of the mission to create a larger pool, you know, market for this sort of lower grade fruit. We pay the normal price that you'd norm- that you'd pay. So, right. Um, we um, we found that no, there hasn't been a sort of a price increase because because of that. Um, and there's always going to be this lower grade fruit because of you know the way it's grown or the fact that it's overweight mm-hmm. or it's got slight blemishes. Um, and we're a long way off, um, you know, that fruit being or, or veg being used. Um, so if that is the case and there is no wonky fruit left, then that's mission accomplished. But <laughs> we are a, a long way away from that. Um, and the more that we can talk and use our, our platform to talk about it, um, the better. Fantastic. We're pretty much out of time, Jack. Uh, but before I let you go, I just want to turn things to a slightly more positive note because I feel like I have asked you a lot about <laughs> super, super challenging and, and difficult topics in the industry. And I, I do think it's a reflection of what we're all preoccupied with at the moment. You know, something like inflation, of course, everyone is is just super focused on. But what are you excited about um, for 2022? What fills you with hope and excitement about what we can expect this year in grocery? Oh, yeah. So... I think for us generally we're at a really exciting time for the brand and um, we the brand awareness has increased significantly so what we're seeing is rate of sale in the places that we are sold in is is, is growing sort of exponentially so that's really exciting for the future of, of the business and how we are thinking creatively of ways in which to get our product to the end consumer so whether it's online or, for instance, we've just been told by the gorillas buyer that Dash is selling better than um, full fat Coke um, on their their platform, um, and th- things like that have um, 
you know new ways of of getting dash out there to 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 people so rapid grocery is something that we're really excited about um with with our consumer um so there's so much um that, that we're excited it's really trying to change the way that people look at soft drinks traditional soft drinks and mm. educate people that you know they don't have to be bad for you you don't have to take on those you know 100 150 calories or you don't need to take on the artificial sweeteners um to have a, a really exciting experience um the soft drink um so it's sort of one of i always say it but I feel like this is a, a great year for, for for Dash as we try and sort of pierce the mainstream um, and take a bit of a foothold, you know, in the very large um, soft drinks category. Jack, this has been such an interesting conversation. I'm so grateful that you've been able to come on the show. If listeners uh, want to take you up on your offer of, of possibly asking you for a little bit of advice or just connecting, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, my email address is really simple. It's just jack at dash-water.com. Um, and it'd be great to hear from, from anyone. So email's best or, or LinkedIn, uh, just jack from dash um, should find, find me pretty easily. Fantastic. Jack, <laughs> thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much, Julia. We'll speak soon. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.